The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And he was a very small man, but in spite of his size, uh, he made up for, it with his, up for it with his dynamic personality. Somebody said of him once that uh, dynamite comes in small packets, and that was very true of him. And I think we can say a similar thing about Haggai, once you begin to get into it and understand it. It's a small book with just two chapters, but when we get into it, it makes a, a big noise if we allow it to speak to us. Now, this morning I want to think big to begin with and not get too focused on details. So I'm going to be painting with large brushstrokes. But I want to begin by reminding ourselves of the, of the very big context of the Bible and then see later on how Haggai fits into the true story of the world as we find it recorded in the Bible. So scripture informs us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But before the beginning there existed an uncreated being that we call God or Yahweh or I am. Now we know that there is something singular about him. So he is one. But he's also plural so he is three. So God is not some solitary being who exists alone, as uh, Pastor Tim often says, without any friends. But neither is he three separate deities who compete with power for each other. God is three beings who are so united in love and purpose that they are one in the most profound sense possible. So we have one God who exists eternally as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And he existed before the beginning. And a very long time ago, God spoke. And he created this remarkable universe. It was uh, beautiful, it was majestic, and it was perfect. And it reflected the glory of the one who made it. And as a kind of finale, as a climax to the creation, God created a man and a woman in his own image. And he placed them on this planet that we call Earth. And he put them into a garden. And he called them to be the king and the queen over all his created work. And these two humans, Adam and Eve, were complex bags of dirt, but they were kissed by heaven, made in the very image of God. And they had incredible significance. They had power to build a perfect world, but they also had power to damn the whole world by their disobedience. Adam and Eve, the first couple. But, you know, because love is only genuine if, it, genuine if it is offered voluntarily, they had a test of obedience. And tragically, Adam and Eve failed their test. They disobeyed God, and God had created them high. If you're created high, you can fall a long way. And they fell a long way. They fell into guilt and shame and evil and corruption. You see, if you have freedom to do good, then you also have freedom to do evil. And wow, did our human race do evil. Lots of it. It's our trademark in many ways. When you read history, I teach history, uh, you see a pattern of evil and sin going right through history. We saw some of the horror of it this week in Thailand with despicable evil, evil taking place. We see it daily in the Ukraine. So the world's history is in one sense little, little more than a tale of 
wars and power struggles and genocides and wicked conquests and disease and death. You see, Adam and Eve lit a fire that burns until this very day and it burns in our hearts as well. We're not victims of the world. The world is, is a victim of our, of our race, the human race. But worst of all, when Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, they ruptured the relationship between God and humanity and they brought themselves under a death sentence. And God is perfectly just and in his court, sinners deserve to die and they will. So if we compare this world to Humpty Dumpty, you know the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty, we fell off a great wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. See, the point is that we cannot fix this world ourselves. Salvation, redemption has to come from outside the world. When we try to make the world better with our utopian dreams and visions, very often we make the world a worse place. But here's the thing, and here's our hope, that God was determined to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And to simplify the story for the sake of time, the father would send his son into the world as a man. Adam had fallen short of the glory of God. His son, Jesus Christ, is the glory of God. He would put the world back together again. And in particular, he would die on a cross to pay the price for sin, a price that we could not pay. And he would rise again triumphant. But we'll come on to that later on. Now, you might not think this, but we're getting close to Haggai. You see, God could have parachuted his son into the world from heaven. And he landed somewhere. But he chose not to. You see, instead God did something amazing. He called one man out of the nations. And from that man, he raised up a nation. The man is Abraham and the nation is Israel. And through that nation, God would reveal his character, who he was. But in, in particular, he would bring his son into the world as its redeemer. So this person, this son, the son of God, would come twice into the world. First, he would come as redeemer. And second time, he would come up as judge. He would come as judge to wrap up history. Uh, and one day, he would be the king of the whole earth. So Israel's history, the descendants of Abraham, Israel's history, was both glorious and it was also disastrous. From slavery in Egypt to deliverance and freedom. From years in the desert to settling in the promised land. They had the era of judges and then the era of kings. Some kings were good. Most of them were bad. But the nation reached its high point uh, with the uh, coming to the throne of Solomon who built this amazing temple. Uh, the temple was an architectural wonder and it was a national treasure. It was a place where heaven and earth came together and the Israelite people could meet with God. But here's what I want us to see, that all through the history of Israel, through good days and bad days, there are predictions and reminders that one day a great king will come. He would be the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. He would be born to the tribe of Judah. He would be of the family of David. He would be pierced for the transgressions of others. He would be born in Bethlehem. If you trace the lines of scripture, they all lead to him to Jesus, this great king, and especially to a place called Calvary where he would die. But coming back to Israel's history, eventually the nation split into two after Solomon, and things go downhill very fast, especially for the northern kingdom with their ten, ten tribes. Uh, they, <coughs> excuse me, they survive for a while with not a single good king on the throne, 
But eventually they're overrun by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom is obliterated. Tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, of course Judah had to survive because the king was coming from the line of Judah. It is the royal tribe. But the, the, the kingdom in the south survived longer. But eventually they are overrun by the Babylonians who come into Jerusalem. They break the walls down and they smash their temple to the ground. And they take the leaders of the nation and quite a lot of the nation into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And the great king has still not come. But after 70 years in Babylon, another empire is in place that's overthrown the Babylonian Empire. This time the Persian, the Medes and the Persian Empire has taken over from the Babylonians. And the Jews, as they're now called, because they are descendants of Judah, are permitted to go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And amazingly, they're able to rebuild it with money from the Persian treasury. And that's where we pick up the story, where Haggai comes in. So that's our big picture context background. My second heading is Building Begins. So when the Persians uh, announce to the Jewish people in Babylon that they can return to their homeland, only 3% do so. 50,000 people. You can work out the figures in Ezra. 97% of them stay in Babylon. They're not particularly, uh, or what was Babylon, uh, Persia. Uh, they're not particularly oppressed and they become prosperous. And 97% of them decide not to go back to rebuild their nation and their temple. But the thing that I want us to think about this morning is this, that 3% of the people give up their comforts and their security and they return. And I think it's very likely because they know that the central purpose of Israel had not yet been completed. The great king had not yet come. And they're led back by Zerubbabel, um, who is the heir apparent to the throne of David. Now, when the people uh, return uh, to uh, the land of Israel, the land that God had given to Abraham, they find the city of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, and the temple as well is in, is in rubble. So they make a start rebuilding the temple, but it's a, it's a huge undertaking, and eventually the work stalls and they get discouraged. So 16 years go by with them being in Jerusalem, and little happens with the temple. And God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And their job was twofold. It was to rebuke the people and remind them of why they'd returned to the nation. And secondly, their job was to encourage the people to continue on with building the temple. So during the 16 years, while the temple uh, was not being rebuilt... Um, and had been neglected, we discover in chapter 1 that the people had concentrated on building their own homes. They were building nice houses and they were panelling them, I can't say that word, on the inside to make them beautiful houses. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with having a nice house, but it was at the expense of the temple. And Haggai reminds them that as a consequence of their neglect of the temple, God was withholding blessing in all the other domains of their lives. Their food and their wine supplies were low. Uh, God wanted them to work out the connection. They were neglecting the house of the Lord and they couldn't make ends meet. And God wanted them to join the dots and realize why. So here's the point. They had their priorities out of order. Their personal lives were first and God's house was second. So they put their own personal security and comfort 
before the very reason for Israel's existence, which was the temple, the presence of God, preparation for the arrival of the great king. You know, we face the same temptation today. Churches die this way. In the United Kingdom, where I'm from in the 1960s and 70s, there was something of a, of a, a revival among the churches. And lots of students at universities got powerfully converted. And the presence of God was very powerful in the churches. And dynamic churches were born full of hard-working people with zeal and commitment. I kind of lived through the end of those days as a, as a child. But in time, these students... Uh, split up into couples and they got married and they had children and in many cases they got so caught up with their own private lives that the church was neglected and their children in turn often became just Sunday attenders at best they neglected the work of the work of the church in a way that was so present with their parents generation earlier on you see I come from a culture and I think many of you probably do as well that says, when you think about your order of duty in life, sort out your home and your career and your children's education first, and if you have any time and cash left over, then you can give it to the church. So the church gets the leftovers of our lives. And when that happens, we forget Christ's command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the promise that when we do that, then all these other things will be added to us. It's a question of priorities. Now, of course, none of, this, none of this means that our marriages and our families don't matter to God. They do matter to God. In fact, there's another sermon uh, on a different day which needs to be preached that some people so involved in ministry need to give more time to their, uh, to their marriages and their families and their children. But that's a different sermon. My message this morning is a slightly different one. It's the neglect of the church. See, what I'm talking about here is the crowding out of the church because of our private lives when we retreat into our private spheres of existence and we neglect the work of the church. So as we've seen in recent weeks, in chapter 1, the message of Haggai is this, to get your priorities in order and get on with the job of, in their case, building the temple, in our case, of working for the furthering of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. So that's the first lesson of the book of Haggai. The second one is this, and Pastor Tim talked about this last week. Now, the people who are rebuked by Haggai, they get on with the work of building the temple. Uh, but there are people around who remember the old temple. I think of these as the grey-haired ones. This was a long time ago. So the ones who remember the temple must have been uh, pretty elderly and pretty grey-haired. Uh, they remember the, the, the glory of the former temple and they despair and maybe their despair causes discontent amongst the other people. The, the, the building that they are making seems uh, pitiful in comparison. And they, 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 they lose hope of having sufficient resources to complete anything that will be a fitting temple for the Lord. Now this is a reminder of the power that older people can have over younger people. People who are forever regretting that the present is not the past. You met anybody like that? There's a danger in that. In the good old days, it, things were marvellous. And we forget sometimes that we are in the moment that God has, God has ordained for us. 
And we are an age that God has ordained for us as well. So I'm 53. God's ordained me to be 53. And I shouldn't complain about it. You see, God has got work for us to do. So we shouldn't ever complain about our age or our time that we live in. Uh, When we do that, we're saying that we know better than God. God has raised us up and put us into this world for a particular time and place. And we're in that place now. In response to those who are reminiscing about the amazing temple of olden days, the Lord speaks through Haggai. He speaks to Joshua, uh, the son of the high priest, and he speaks to him in a way that he spoke to the Joshua of old, the one who was the successor to Moses. And he reminds him and the people to be strong as they confront their building task. To be strong in the Lord. They weren't allowed to wither under discouragement but to carry on with the conviction that God was with them in what they were doing. And that's a great lesson for us, isn't it? There's a great lesson for us. Keep going. St. Churchill said, uh, when you're going through hell, keep going. And it's a great lesson. Don't walk away. Don't back out. Don't run away from your responsibilities. Keep going. And God will work his purposes out in those difficulties. So they're to keep going, even though it's difficult. And the elderly people are complaining. And interestingly, Haggai reminds them, because they're worried about their resources and finishing the temple, he reminds them that all the silver and gold of the nations belong to the Lord. And he will shake the nations for money. And the nations will pay for the temple amazingly. And it will be a glorious temple. Not in a moment, and not even in their lifetimes, did they see a glorious temple. And the point is that we are always in a, in a hurry, but God never is in a hurry. And that's a good lesson to learn as well. And by the time that Jesus came to this temple, at least 400 years later, it was a glorious temple. It had been made glorious by King Herod, who wasn't even a Jew. He was a son, he was a son of the tribe of Esau. And it was paid for using Roman money in fulfillment that God would shake the nations for their money to build the temple. So the resources were there to build a glorious temple. The people in the days of Haggai were to do the works of the Lord in their day and not look back nostalgically on some good old day which maybe didn't quite exist as they thought it did. And you know, it's the same for us today. If God has put our hand to something and he is with that thing that he's put our hands to, then it is never trivial. And very likely we will not live to see the final results of our labours. You know, all activities are great if we do them for Christ and because he's given them, given those things to us to do. We might be homeschooling our children. We might be teaching a small Bible class. We might have given our lives to a life of intercession for the nations. We might be fathering our children. We might be running a business built on righteousness, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the thing is that success is doing what Christ has called us to do. And every work is valuable if we, do it, if we do it for Jesus. And we've got to remember that when you build, you invariably build more than you can see now. Eternity will reveal how much. But now we labour in faith, believing that God will reward our efforts and heaven will be beautified because of our labours and our faithfulness one day. What we do now echoes in eternity. But here's the point. The temple builders were to work, this is what I want to talk about, the temple builders were to work for a greater 
purpose than themselves. All the way uh, 500 years before Christ, they were to labor for a, a purpose greater than themselves. They were to labor for the story of redemption, which would culminate uh, for Israel with the arrival of the great king, Jesus Christ. And so it's with all that background this morning that we come to this passage, which is a very obscure passage. When I first read it, I thought, goodness me, what shall I say about that? Uh, when Pastor Tim gave it to me. But here's my heading for the verses, 10 to 19. is this, consecrated for a purpose. Consecrated for a purpose. In our passage, we have here a reminder from Haggai that building the temple is not a way of scoring points with God. It's God wants our work, but more than him wanting our work, he wants our hearts. And the state of our hearts is revealed by our consecration to him. That's the lesson of these verses. So, in verse 12, if, anyone, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches, uh, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, does it become holy? And the answer is no. So here's the point that's being made. Does something holy, touching something unholy, make it holy? No. And Haggai in verse 13 says, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answer and say, it does become unclean. Well, to put this another way, quite confusing, but to put it another way, does something unholy in the Old Testament world of Israel, does something unholy like a dead body, something holy make it unclean? And the answer is yes. It becomes unclean. Let me give you a really contemporary example to try to explain this, a kind of idiom. I'm standing by the door of the church. and Now imagine that you have COVID and on the way out you kiss me. Now, I don't have COVID. I'm a perfectly clear specimen. Now, does the fact that, you, that I don't have COVID cure you of your... Uh, it's just gone off. <coughs> does it... Does, uh, that's better. So, uh, does the fact that I don't have COVID cure you of your COVID? And the answer, of course, is no. My cleanness can't make you clean. But can I, as a non-COVID person, catch your COVID when you kiss me? Well, very possibly. Your uncleanness can make me unclean. That's really putting what uh, God says through Haggai in a contemporary form. The point is that God is reminding us that holiness, holiness does not rub off on us. Just because we're among a people who are called to holiness. But on the other hand, our sin can rub off on the church and affect the whole fellowship making the whole fellowship impure. Then verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So here's the point, that the sin, the personal sin of the builders was contaminating the nation. You see, sin is a bit like a virus. Uh, it affects us personally, it affects our minds, so we can't think straight. It affects our wills, and it can cripple our, our capacity to make good decisions. But sin also affects our emotions. It 
It can rob us of our peace and fellowship with God. But also, and this is the lesson from here, sin can bring a whole people or a whole church under God's displeasure and discipline. And it can limit his blessing. You see, we live in, many of us come from a world of individualism, where we just live for ourselves and to ourselves. But in in the real world, in God's world, uh, no one lives to to himself or herself alone, uh, especially among God's people. You see, our actions have third-party costs and benefits. We are one body. And the condition of the hand cannot be separated separated from the condition of the leg. So in the context of our passage, yes, Paul, for corporate worship, above all, he wanted the hearts of those who were building the temple. He wanted heart affection and heart obedience. He wanted purity of life. You see, just putting bricks and stones of one another was not the point. So, Uh, Just putting bricks and stones on top of one another was not the point for the temple builders. The question was, were the people building the temple because they loved the one who sought to dwell there among the nation of Israel? During the Napoleonic Wars, 200 years ago, uh, there was a story of a French soldier who'd been shot in the chest And as the surgeon extracted the bullet without anaesthetic, he remarked that one inch lower and the bullet would have gone into his heart. And the soldier replied, one inch lower and you would find Napoleon. That was his devotion to his leader. Now here's the question for us. If our hearts were opened up, would we find Jesus Christ resident and loved there? Uh, Nathan Clifton Um, who I guess is doing deeper today, said to us a few months ago, he said, following Christ involves our hearts because Christ has first given his heart to us, which is a great way to put it. So in our passage, what follows is a repeat of what God said to the people when they were building lovely houses for themselves and they were panelling them with beautiful polished wood. A similar scenario was playing out. Although they were building the temple and God was with them, their defilement meant that they were short on food and they were short on drink, their wine and their crops, their seeds, their fig trees, (coughs) uh, their olive trees and their pomegranates were all in short supply. And the reason was, to put it bluntly, that because of their sin, God was not blessing them in their agricultural endeavours. Let me try and illustrate this, um, this diminishing of their production in, a, in this way. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it makes a point. Um, when I lived in, in Africa, we employed a lady in our house. Uh, and one day we were chatting about money. And she said to me, you, she said to me, you can have blessed money, money and you can have cursed money. And she explained to me that blessed money is money that is obtained by honourable means through employment and hard work. But cursed money is money that is obtained through corruption and, and dishonest means. Um, and this kind of reflects uh, 
a common way that many people in traditional African societies would think about the world. They would explain the world very much through blessings and curses. And she said to me that blessed money is money that lasts. It, it, it goes a long way, just like the, the widow in the days of Elisha. The more oil that she poured out, almost the more she had. She said, when I have money that is blessed by God, it lasts a long time, it, it meets my needs. But on the other hand, she said, corrupt money is cursed money. Sorry, corrupt money that is cursed money. And she said this in her Ugandan way, it goes and it goes and it goes. Uh, it kind of disappears very quickly. And before long, there's nothing left. I, my, a friend of mine says this happens to lottery winners. They win their money on the lottery. But within five years, it's all gone. Um, now, I, I'm not saying this is a perfect illustration, but in our passage, seemingly, because there was, there was defilement among the people, their efforts that they put into farming resulted in diminishing returns. It resulted in very little results because God was not blessing the work of their hands. And the reason we find in verse 17 is God says to them through Haggai, yet you did not uh, return to me. Even when they built the temple, they did not return to him. Uh, once they started building, God wanted their hearts more than their hands which were engaged in temple building. And here's the lesson for us. You might be a missionary doing great things to advance the Great Commission. But the question is, do you love Jesus Christ? Is your devotion with, to him with all your heart, mind and soul? Is your life consecrated to him? Is he the foundation of all your ministry, all your devotion and all your worship? Or is your motivation for something else? Is it for you and your self-esteem? These are great questions we sometimes need to think about. And my fourth heading, final heading, is Jesus Christ and his church, the true temple. Jesus Christ and his church, the true temple. So how do we apply this to us living today? Living in Thailand, serving in Thailand perhaps. <clears throat> well, this book, Haggai, is part of our story. And there are profound lessons for us who are living centuries later. You see, these Jewish people were building the temple. They were seeking to restart a nation. And this nation had the most important task in the whole of history. You know, you might have thought, uh, you might think to this today, if you read the secular history books, you might have thought that it was the mighty empires who played the big roles in history. Egypt and Assyria, Babylonia, the Medes and Persians, the Roman Empire. But if you thought that, you'd be mistaken. All of those empires are just history lessons today. You see, it was little Israel that had the big task. Through that nation would come the great king, heaven's champion. He's the one who would take, who would take control of the wheel of this world and steer it to its restoration and its former glory. You see, the sun was coming. He would enter the world as a man. He would save us through substitution. He would trade his life for ours. And he would die the death that we deserve. And on the third day, he would rise triumphantly from the grave, offering redemption and life and hope to all who would put their trust in him. You see, the people in our passage were putting bricks in place. <clears throat> 
But as they put bricks in place, it could have seemed to be very mundane to them, very routine. They put one brick upon the next, upon the next, upon the next. But when they did, they carried the story of the world forward. They were participants in that story. They were securing a nation into whom Jesus Christ would one day come. So they were called to consecrate themselves, not for themselves, but for a greater purpose. A purpose that they only knew in shadows and outline, but one that would be fulfilled. And when it was fulfilled, it would change the world forever. In and through their nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. They were fulfilling a purpose, purpose that was far greater than they could ever imagine. Every stone set in place contributed to God's redemptive plan to redeem this broken planet. Every stone laid was in some sense obedience to a greater story than their own. And for us, while we stand this side of the king's coming, we look back at the events of Bethlehem and what happened at Galilee and Gethsemane and Golgotha and the Garden of Resurrection and we now know that the temple that the Jews were building was just a signpost. It was a it was a, a, a picture, a signpost to Jesus, who is the true temple. He is now here among his people. Jesus is the, is the real and final meeting place between God and human beings. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. You see, the Jews built their temple to offer sacrifices. And all those sacrifices pointed ahead. They weren't worth anything really. They just pointed to something greater. But Jesus came as the sacrifice who would pay the penalty for sin. And his blood is powerful. It is blood that speaks. And it speaks of forgiveness. You see, Jesus Christ came as the full and complete remedy for sin. They were all that you, in the Old Testament, you have shadows. In Jesus, you have the reality. And we, like these Jews of old, we also are called to hold on to the big picture. And we are never to forget the true story of the world. But there's a temptation. This is our temptation, that we look to lesser stories and we believe lesser stories about the world. So we begin to think that the world is about our kingdom. It's about our money and our houses and our fame and our personal comforts and our pleasures and our entertainment. We believe lesser stories. This is the greatest temptation upon the people of God to believe lesser stories than the true story. See, just like the Jews of old, we are also looking for the coming king. Jesus Christ came once, but he is coming again. The first time he came silently at Bethlehem, he's not coming silently the second time. He's coming with a great trumpet that will sound and every eye will see him as the lightning flashes from east to west. Everybody will see him. And the second time he comes, he's not coming as our redeemer in one sense. He's coming as, as the judge of the world to claim his own people. When I served as a pastor in England, we had a communion table. I love this communion table uh, because it was an old table, 1840. But carved into the, t into the, into the, carved into this table was three words, till he come. Till he he come. And they're Paul's words, that words if you know your scriptures for, uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. You see, Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming 
to own his people and he's coming to judge the world. And in the meantime, we have a great task to do. And our task is to work for the building of his church. The church is the supernatural family of God through time and geography. And we give our lives to ensure that she is faithful to the remarkable calling that she has, the church. We need to remind ourselves, especially in this day and generation, we need to remind ourselves that the truth about life, the truth about the world, the truth about the universe is entrusted to the church. She is the pillar and ground of truth. The truth about the universe is not entrusted to the philosophers and the academics, to the universities, the clever elites of the world. It's not. It's not entrusted to the cultural mood, the zeitgeist of the times. It's not. And we've got to, it's not entrusted to the media and their conversation. It's just not. Or the politicians who govern us. It's not entrusted to them. The truth about the universe is entrusted to the church. The church of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We need to persuade our children of that because many of them don't believe it. You see, the church is central to the plan of God for the ages. Through the church, God is made known. His wisdom is made known. His character is made known. The church is, the world through the church is evangelized and it is loved. And the church is destined to be the queen of heaven married to the king of heaven, King Jesus, for all eternity. You can never have a big enough view of the church of Jesus Christ. So we consecrate ourselves for a bigger purpose, a higher purpose than ourselves. The story continues. The story of redemption continues. And we are invited to this great privilege of taking our place and playing our part in the story of the world. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.